Welcome to chapter 41 of A History of England. This is David Beeson, focusing for once on just a single individual. I hope you'll enjoy the episode because the individual was a remarkable woman and she made a major medical breakthrough possible. That should be fun, though perhaps not if you're a sensitive anti-vaxxer, in which case you might prefer to skip this episode and come back for the next one instead. Still with me? In that case, let's meet Lady Mary Pierpont. Her father was a politician who became the first Duke of Kingston upon Hull, and her mother was the daughter of an earl. So Mary didn't come from a particularly modest background. But misfortune can strike anyone from any class. Her mother died when Mary was only three. Her grandmother, who took over her care, died five years later. She then found herself thrown into reliance on a father who didn't think the education of women mattered much. He gave her a hopeless governess, so Mary decided that she had to educate herself. She taught herself Latin, a language generally regarded as only appropriate to study by men at the time. She later claimed that while she was studying Latin, everyone thought I was reading nothing but romances. She launched herself on an extensive course of reading some of the most important writers, not just in English, but also in French. On top of that, by the time she was 15, she'd built a collection of her own writings, including poetry and a short novel. Her closest friend was called Anne Wortley. For a while, they exchanged letters full of lavish compliments, met at social functions and visited each other at their homes. But death was a much more common presence in the early 18th century, and Anne died when Mary was only 20. However, Anne's brother, Edward Wortley Montague, stepped into the gap, or attempted to. When Edward set out to court her, and in particular to maintain an illicit correspondence with her, Mary went along with him at least to a degree. By the standards of the time, she should have obtained her father's permission first, but no doubt knowing he'd refuse it, she corresponded secretly with Edward for the best part of a year and a half. He was increasingly besotted with her, but she most certainly wasn't with him. It was perhaps his awareness of her lack of feeling for him that stopped him approaching her father for her hand. She ended up breaking things off with him, aware that she was perhaps simply not up to the level of emotional commitment required of her. I can esteem, she said, I can be a friend, but I don't know whether I can love. That's when her father decided to find a suitable match for her. Edward certainly wouldn't have been on the shortlist as being nothing like grand enough for his tastes. He came up with a candidate, however, that was certainly not to hers. She not only refused him, but, no doubt out of desperation, she stirred up Edward again and persuaded him to elope with her. Following their marriage, she took the name by which she's better known to this day, Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Now, though Edward wasn't grand enough for her father, don't go getting the impression that he was somehow common or poor. On the contrary, he spent most of his career as a member of Parliament, and in 1716 he was sent as an ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. The year before, Mary had contracted smallpox. 
something like half the people who caught the disease died of it. Overall, some 10% of the population were killed by it. She was lucky enough to recover, but was left scarred by the disease. Literally, it left pockmarks. She accompanied her husband to Turkey. From there, she wrote a series of letters which were eventually published as the Turkish Embassy Letters, the first traveller's account by a woman about the Middle East. She focused on Islam and the position of women, and many of the comparisons she made with life at home were far from favourable to the West. A bit like Voltaire writing about England to highlight French shortcomings, she wrote about Turkey to point out the defects of the English. She, however, adopted a rather different tone from his, less sparkling perhaps, but sometimes more shocking, at least for the times. For instance, writing to her friend, the Princess of Wales, wife of the later King George II, she described a visit to a hammam, a public bath, but a space reserved exclusively for women. The first sofas were covered with cushions and rich carpets, she wrote, on which sat the ladies, and on the second their slaves behind them, but without any distinction of rank by their dress, all being in the state of nature, that is, in plain English, stark naked, without any beauty or defect concealed. There were many amongst them as exactly proportioned as ever any goddess was drawn by the pencil of Guido or Titian, and most of their skins strikingly white, only adorned by their beautiful hair divided into many tresses, hanging on their shoulders, braided either with pearl or ribbon, perfectly representing the figures of the graces. It was the women's bodies that apparently struck her most. I was here convinced of the truth of a reflection that I had often made, that if it was the fashion to go naked, the face would be hardly observed. I perceived that the ladies with finest skins and most delicate shapes had the greatest share of my admiration, though their faces were sometimes less beautiful than those of their companions. As well as being fascinated by the female beauty she saw displayed before her, she was also interested in the variety of activities in which they were engaged. She saw so many fine women naked in different postures, some in conversation, some working, others drinking coffee or sherbet, and many negligently lying on their cushions while their slaves, generally pretty girls or 17 or 18, were employed in braiding their hair in several pretty manners. In short, tis the women's coffee-house, where all the news of the town is told, scandal invented, etc. You'll remember that back in London, coffee-houses had become the great centres for business, for the exchange of ideas about science or the arts, and above all, for political debate. And, I suspect, as Mary Wortley Montague suggested, for gossip. But they were frequented almost exclusively by men. Here in Turkey, women had their own space and a certain freedom. Mary was good at reflecting on herself and had this to say about how, even in the women's bath, she was still locked into her stays or corset. The lady that seemed the most considerable amongst them entreated me to sit by her and would fain have undressed me for the bath. I excused myself with some difficulty but they being, however, all so earnest in persuading me, 
I was at last forced to open my shirt and show them my stays, which satisfied them very well, for I saw they believed I was so locked up in that machine that it was not in my power to open it, which contrivance they attributed to my husband. Now, I'm by no means the first to have been struck by the homoerotic tone of some of these observations. It leads me to wonder just what her relationship had been to the dead Anne Wortley, and whether it was based on inclinations that had coloured her view of Anne's brother and made her delay her eventual marriage to him. She remained with her husband for some time after their return to England, but eventually left him and spent most of the rest of her life on the continent, only travelling back a few months before her own death and missing her husband's the year before. Initially, when she travelled to the continent, it was for a love affair and for another man, Francesco Algarotti, Italian scientist and party lover of the time, well known for his many homosexual affairs, not least with Frederick II, later known as Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia. Frederick, who was certainly gay, had as a young man been forced to watch his lover hanged on the orders of his father, the then king, and that apparently had left him incapable of being the active partner in a homosexual encounter. Perhaps Algarotti was the opposite. Perhaps that's what attracted Mary. Perhaps, as the historian Marilyn Morris has pointed out, she was less a fag-hag than a gay man trapped in a woman's body. Perhaps she was gay herself and attracted to other gays, or bisexuals, as Algarotti seems to have been, of either sex. Who knows? I find all this part of her story compelling and intriguing, if only because it describes a rich and complex personality. But that's not what Lady Mary's known for. Something of far greater general importance emerged from her time in Turkey. She witnessed the use of what's known as variolation, people being inoculated with live smallpox on the basis that those who have had the disease show a high degree of immunity to it in the future. This is not vaccination, anything but. This is live smallpox and it causes a real case of smallpox. The hope was that the attack would give immunity but would itself be mild. It often was, but there was no guarantee. Variolation could kill the patient. Still, Mary had been through smallpox herself and she knew what it was like. She decided that the risk was worth taking for the protection the procedure granted. In 1718, in the first recorded instance of anyone from England being inoculated with smallpox, she had the procedure applied to her then five-year-old son, called Edward like his father, and with entirely satisfactory results. Her daughter was too young then, but back in England, with a smallpox outbreak raging in 1721, Mary had a daughter, another Mary, the parents weren't imaginative when it came to naming their children, inoculated too. Lady Mary campaigned in favour of the procedure, but met considerable resistance. There were anti-variolators then, as there are anti-vaxxers today. The medical profession didn't help. They liked to apply the fashionable technique of bleeding their patients at the same time as they inoculated them, which left them weak to combat the disease. And they also let them leave their beds and go into public while infected with smallpox, which spread the disease. 
but Caroline, the Princess of Wales, inoculated her two daughters. Other royal families around Europe began to adopt the practice. Catherine the Great of Russia would have herself and her son, the heir to the imperial throne, inoculated. The relatively low risk of the procedure, coupled with its success against a much riskier disease, eventually began to win people round. Voltaire had a view to express about this breakthrough as he did on so many subjects. I'm going to quote him in his own English, since if he took the trouble to learn the language well enough to write in it, as he did, I'm certainly not going to waste my time translating his later French version of the same book. In his letters concerning the English nation, he tells us that the Princess of Wales, being assured of the usefulness of this operation, caused her own children to be inoculated. A great part of the kingdom followed her example, and since that time 10,000 children, at least, of persons of condition, owe in this manner their lives to Her Majesty and to the Lady Wortley Montague. When Lady Mary died in 1762, a young contemporary of hers, Edward Jenner, was just 13. As an adult and a physician, he noticed that milkmaids often developed cowpox from contact with their cows, but never got smallpox. He wasn't the first to use cowpox instead of smallpox as an inoculation, but he was the first to explain why it worked. Cowpox is sufficiently like smallpox to give immunity, but it produces only a minor disease in humans. Inoculating with pus from a cowpox blister would work as well as using smallpox and be far less dangerous. Vaca is a Latin word for cow, so Jenner called the practice he'd developed vaccination. Hundreds of millions owe their lives to Jenner's work just by vaccination against smallpox. Add in the many other life-saving vaccinations that have been produced, and the figure would be many times higher. It's been said of Jenner that he saved more lives than any other person ever has. Behind him, though, and making his work possible, was the breakthrough made by a witty, curious, sexually ambivalent woman, Lady Mary Wortley Montague. I hope you've enjoyed meeting her. We're going to change gear completely in our next episode and take a look at the business of empire, which it turns out was business. I look forward to continuing our conversation then. <laughs> <laughs>